Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. You know, I found it incredible, David, the amount of comments we got ahead of our interview with Stephen Broadbent of oh, Reality yeah. Uncovered. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, he, he, he's he been called everything under the sun by some of the people whose work he uh, was delving into. And they just basically, it's funny how they didn't attack the content of the issue he was covering. They attacked him personally. Which is typical of the way the UFO field works. Yeah. A lot of fields are like that. But the UFO field is a mess. And if people were hoping to learn something about the subject, it's not going to happen the way it's going now. Mm -hmm. And if the government was hoping we wouldn't learn about the subject, they can just sit back and have a great laugh. And that's really sad. Yeah, they don't have to do much to, uh, to keep things under wraps. And it's unfortunate because at this point, I think we're almost at, we're almost at a, a point in history where there's enough information that we can start to glean some actual truth about this subject. But the, the signal-to-noise ratio is what's suffering. There's so much noise around this, and there are so many cases that should have gone away years ago that just won't. They steal all of the attention and the bandwidth that legitimate cases really need, and it's just unfortunate. It's almost as if there's a disinformation campaign going on within the community, and like you said, the government just sits back and smiles. Hmm. But, you know, this has gone on for a long time, and on the first part of this episode, we've brought on our associate producer, Tim Beckley, who's been in the UFO field for as long as anyone. He grew up in the UFO field. He, like 312 years, right? Uh, you're off by uh, half a century, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. More well, or less, right. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Good to be on with you guys again. I haven't talked to you in a while. You know, I was wondering, you and I had a couple of fights in the early days when we were teenagers, but, you know, that was typical of what went on then. Yeah, well, you know, not that much has uh, changed. In fact, the thing that I, I kind of find uh, interesting about the the field is uh, there are always, there's always some Johnny-come-lately who mm. does not uh, understand the, you know, the history or what came before him and thinks that there's some big revelation that he's made that nobody's made before. Well, I don't know what new revelation could possibly be made that didn't, that didn't occur 30 or, or, or 40 years ago because pretty much what we know about UFOs now is what we knew about UFOs then. UFOs are unidentified. And that's, you know, that's the brilliant thing about the subject, because since it's identified, it allows anyone to speculate on uh, on what they are, where they originate from, and who might be on board. Hmm. And, you know, people, these, these ufologists, uh, the, the ufology eggheads, as I call them, like the Dick Hall and all, they, they sit here and they talk about UFO cover-up and the government knowing, uh, you know, all this information. Well, if the UFOs wanted to land and make themselves known, they would have done that a long time ago. UFOs cover up the mystery of themselves. They don't need uh, any help from armchair uh, ufologists. In fact, one of the questions that I'm uh, always asked is, what are your opinions about UFOs? And I tell the, the host of the particular talk show, it doesn't matter what my opinion or anybody else's opinions are, because UFOs act independently. They act on their own. They don't and care about us at all, Tim. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Coming up ahead, we talk to our associate producer, Mr. UFO himself, Tim Beckley. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You know, Gene, I equate ufology to professional wrestling. I've always been a fan of the the sport. It's very entertaining, and UFOs are entertaining uh, as well. In fact, you know, you've got to take all of this kind of with a grain of salt. I mean, all these people that are in the field, the so-called serious researchers, I all, I all give them a bit of a credit, or a lot of credit, actually, because there's no money to be made on this. There's perhaps a little bit of glory, and you get to be on the uh, the power cast and coast to coast, and uh, Kevin Smith and all these great uh, you know the programs that are out there, and you get to espouse your particular uh, theory, but it doesn't really make too much difference in the in the overall uh, scheme of uh, things. And in addition to the UFOs uh, covering up uh, uh, their own identity, ufologists do a, a great misservice in attacking each other, I do believe. Now, there are, there are some uh, obvious uh, hoaxes that need to be laid to rest pretty uh, easily. Uh, things like the Billy Meyer case, totally absurd. Those photographs and the videos are the, the fakest thing on earth. In yeah. fact, you know, Gene, I, I'm in the, the movie business, and, you know, people say, oh, but it would be so expensive to do. Ah, ah. I, you know, alien autopsy, immediately when I saw it, I said, this is the most bogus thing on earth. Any, anyone who falls for this or promote this should be drummed out of ufology. And people like Michael Hessman get on there and come up with all theories and ideas and, and, and just keep the, the hoaxes going like this. I mean, anybody who knew anything about making films could tell you this was childish, it was amateurish, the alien did not look like a human being, it looked like a piece of rubber. And, and, that, and that's what it is. You know, and people said, oh, but it would be so expensive to do. Man, I know 16-year-old kids who have better-looking aliens down in their basement that they use to make uh, videos and, and, and films out of. And it cost them next to nothing a little bit of talent. That alien was so bogus-looking, the fact that anybody could 
be hoaxed by it, or that the Fox Network would put that on is a total a total shame. It's just a total well, shame. Well, it is the Fox Network we're talking about. They were about yes, to put on the O.J. Yes. Simpson nightmare, and uh, apparently had second thoughts about it. But here's the thing, guys. Tim, you know, you talk about these long-standing hoax hoax cases and these long-standing just nonsensical piles of junk. But what is it that give the, gives these things life? Why do they well, persist know, for so you know, many years? This is another thing. Here, I'm, I'm in the book publishing business. And people say, oh, you publish sensationalistic material, you publish trash. No, you have to separate the Tim Beckley, uh, the ufologist, from Tim Beckley, the publisher. Because I'm like any other publisher. I put out books that people are interested in. I've published 150 books, maybe even more, over the, uh, the years. And you want to know something? The so-called serious books, the ones by Jenny Randall, on Bent Waters. They don't sell a tenth of the copies of books of somebody like T. Lompson Grampa or the more sensationalistic stuff. It's what the public wants. The public does not want to read so-called scientific uh, uh, ufological journalism. They don't want to read about lights in the sky. They don't want to read statistics. They want to hear theories and they want to hear stories. Even people who didn't believe George Adamski, everybody in the field has read Flying Saucers and Landed. People want a thrill, and UFOs do provide a certain thrill. There's no doubt uh, about that. But to have people that are in this field who think that they're doing serious research and and what they're doing is is the only uh, you know research that matters is a bunch of nonsense. And and so uh, it's a complicated. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tim. Tim, hold on, hold on. I got to stop you on that because I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a, a, into a rant here. But well, no, no, no. But the thing is, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. But for example, recently we had on this guy Rich Dolan, who's oh. on. The sci-fi investigation shows. Well, he yes. seems like a, a fairly intelligent, reasonable guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay. Again, again, he's he's not really making a particular point of view. He's covering the subject, uh, uh, the the from a phenomena point of view and from a sociological point of view. Whoa, whoa, whoa! No, no, no! Actually, he is making a point of view. He's a believer, and well, he believes that there's alien technology in the hands of the of some secret government. Uh, he believes well, that. I, you know, that's a possibility, certainly. But he's not. I would consider him an extremist, and I, I very seldom actually hear him put anybody down. Right. No, he's he's actually a fairly positive guy. Yes. Um, I, then, I, of I, course, I, we... Right. He's one of the, the people that I, I certainly would give uh, a good amount of, uh, you know, credibility yeah, uh, to yeah. and, and say that he's doing a very good job. There's, there's no there's no doubt about it. Well, there, there are people like him that are actually trying to come to some understanding of what this phenomenon yes. is about. You're, you're right in that there are people who are pushing this as entertainment and sensationalistic junk, but at the same time, don't you think this is a topic that is worthy of serious consideration? Oh, well, if, I, if I didn't think that it was it was worthy of serious consideration, I wouldn't be doing this for over uh, 40 years. It, it certainly is a subject that's totally intriguing. It is like playing chess with your mind. I, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's fascinating. It, it's just something. I, I believe you said on the uh, on the uh, the air last week, uh, Gene. It's something that once it grabs you, you can't let go of it. <laughs> or you try to let go of it, and it keeps and it, grabbing and it always, you again. And it always comes back to haunt you. And, you know, I've, I've had peri periods of disillusionment uh, uh, over the years, but it's something that I, I have seen from both a serious uh, point of view, that there is something definitely there that needs to be seriously considered and seriously studied, but there is also a, a pop culture element uh, to it. And actually, probably both of them can, can uh, you know, coexist uh, together as far as I'm concerned.
concern. But to have these out-and-out out hoaxes perpetrated and then to have people in the field, you know, like uh, say that they're legitimate and, and, and that there's something to them when obviously they know that they're like, like the Serpo thing. I mean, it's just total, it's just total <laughs> bully. They, they got it from Steve Spielberg. I mean, it's just like and, and, and Stargate, all of a sudden after the TV series comes out, there has to be a real, you know, Stargate in, somewhere outside of Baghdad or something and that's why we, we started the, the war over there. I mean, it's just like it, it's just like the, 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 the silly season, you know, comes to grips you and, and, you know, maybe that's okay too because there's certainly been periods one that we seem to be in now where there are not very many, you know, UFO sightings that are attracting anybody's attention so, you know, you gotta keep the, you got to keep the subject going and I suppose if uh, you want to, you know, push uh, all of this stuff and MJ-12 and, and all that's uh, that's fine. I have no objection to it, but I I just think that the the backstabbing that that goes on in the in the in the in the field is just uh, beyond control. Because you know, one fellow like Jacques Vallée, he's he's made some critical statements about me in one of his books. Well, first of all, he doesn't even know me, and second of all, his ideas may not be more far fetched than mine, or maybe they are more far fetched. I mean, some of the things he just pulls out of a rabbit's hat. I, I mean, like it were Alice in Wonderland. But people say, oh, it's Jacques Vallée saying it, so there must be something to it. But if Tim Beckley says it, then it's you know sensationalistic and it has no no roots in reality. Well, I've been out there in the field. A lot of these researchers today, they've never investigated the case. I don't think they've ever talked to a witness on the telephone. You know, for years I was out there in the field, man, in my in my jeans, getting down literally to the roots and looking where these things landed in, in farmers' fields and where they left uh, circles in the corn long before crop circles were around. <laughs> the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, before we get landed in the field here, I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're not in any field. And if you want to get in touch with us, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website at thepowercast.com and check out our message boards or download past episodes of the show. You can do that, by the way, through iTunes as well. We're talking with our associate producer on the show, Tim Beckley, who's been in the UFO field forever. He has a publication called Conspiracy Journal, a publication he'll tell you how to subscribe to shortly. He's published 150 books on the subject. And as he says, if you have sensational claims to offer, well, people buy the book. If you just want to list sightings, they might be incredible sightings, mind you. Well, they don't care. You know, going back many, many years, back in the early years, there were the same things going on, like NICAP. We look at NICAP oh, yeah. as this legendary UFO organization. Major Donald Kehoe was the director, or at least at the point in time that it became famous. And yet, during the time that NICAP existed, there was a big controversy over that organization. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, actually, I've never belo- I never belonged to NICAP. I've never belonged to a UFO organization. Uh, it, it just was, you know, I, I've read their newsletters and things. But uh, Major Kehoe started out uh, as a writer for uh, True Magazine back in the early 1950s. The the men's magazines were the uh, the early ones to exploit the the subject. It was Argosy Saga, which I wrote for uh, years later in in True Magazine, and uh, Major Kehoe was the first person, I guess, with some real credibility who wrote about the subject, and one of the first, actually, to put forward the idea that our planet was being uh, visited from outer space. This was uh, after Frank Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers, but I think a little bit before uh, Adamski even uh, came along, and because of the... Um, 
Major Kehoe's uh, credibility. He did get a lot of attention at the time, and he was, along before Stephen Greer, trying to push for congressional uh, hearings on the subject. And, of course, NICAP uh, did have quite a few people uh, of uh, rank and, and file uh, in there uh, that had the you know credentials and all. They had astronomers, and they had scientists, and they had people like uh, Barry Goldwater, who were on the board of directors, and Admiral Hillencoder, and, and so forth, all of whom had made some positive statements about UFOs, but really weren't that uh, much involved in the day-to-day -day running of uh, NICAP. But NICAP was very active in those days. In fact, uh, Major Keyhole got a lot of attention on, on radio and, and, and TV. He was on the Long John Neville show, and uh, the most famous uh, program was the Armstrong Circle Theater, I believe, where Keyhole was on, and he diverted from the script, and they actually cut him off the air. Which, of course, uh, you know, there's government censorship and, and, and all, and, and maybe it was, but it certainly helped to get uh, NICAP and Kehoe a lot of attention at the uh, at the time. Hold on, what did he start yes. saying that got him cut off? Well, you know, I, it wasn't so much what he was saying. Actually, what he told people to do uh, when he got cut off the air uh, was uh, to write to the congressman and demand that, the, you know, the, the subject be put before a congressional hearing, mm -hmm. and somehow this was a diversion from the script. It was a, a, a live program, I believe, um, broadcast on CBS. Right, CBS, and he, and he wrote about it in his book, and right. supposedly he got frustrated because the script was so restrictive, he couldn't release what he thought was the most important UFO information. They kept saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, for whatever reason. It, it looked right. like they incited him to break protocol and right. deviate from the script. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things, it's kind of like the night that Gray Barker was taken off the air when he was talking about the men in black. It adds just a little bit of a, a teaser to the uh, the UFO field and gives people something to talk about. Uh, in fact, there was some speculation that the the network had done it perhaps as a, a ploy to get the ratings. I, I don't know whether that's true or not. And and frankly, that's uh, a little bit before my uh, my uh, my time. I believe that was back in the 1950s. So there's always been this accusation of the you know UFO government cover up and the the Air Force and all knows uh, what's going on. Well, I don't think the Air Force really knows too much more than the general public does. Uh, if there were some involvement in Roswell, and that really did happen, and there was a crash in the field, uh, most of those people uh, have even passed on by, by now. I, and as we know, the documents have been shredded or disappeared or burned or uh, somewhere in the bottom of the, uh, the Pennington archives, and nobody has gotten to them. So I don't even know if there's that many people involved in the military today, unless it's a, you know, and, uh, somebody well, that's the panel uh, uh, of MJ-12. We had Jesse Marcel Jr. on the show. He talked about these materials that he handled. He was sure they were not of terrestrial origin. Let's assume the government was able to grab something in the desert. I mean, let's assume that they got an entire craft worth of metal and some bodies. Don't we presume that those are somewhere, that someone knows where they are? Are they stuck in a jar somewhere and somebody forgot where oh, the key was? Well, that's, that, that's an interesting comment. They, uh, they, they probably are stuck in a jar somewhere, and I don't know how many people know about that uh, hmm. uh, today. That would have been in a... Yes, I, I've talked to Jesse Marcel, and it's a totally credible uh, account. And I believe him 100%. But there's mm -hmm. been so much dirt shoveled on, uh, on, the, uh, on, on Roswell over the last uh, you know, decade or two that it's impossible to get, other than the fact that something happened, it seems to be very uh, unusual. There are so many conflicting stories of what the aliens look like, where the ship landed, and, and what the material was, and, and so forth, that it, it just boggles really? my mind. I 
Well, I have to tell you, I find a lot of the stories uh, have a good amount of overlap to them. I mean, there are some things that there are some anomalous things like Mac Magruder's statements about um, what he saw at Wright-Patterson seem a little odd compared to a lot of the details that we've heard about the, what the alien bodies looked like at Roswell. But I mean, you know, the metal that, had, that seemed to have memory, yeah. these beams with writing on them, those, a number of people have confirmed those elements. I agree. I, I have I have no objection to it. I, I but at, at this point, uh, the case is so old now. What what could one possibly do? To well, that's the that's the sixty four million dollar question, right? I mean, to take it any further than uh, than it's uh, actually uh, you know uh, gotten, and the so called scientific uh, community just has never taken the subject seriously, because not, not because just of the people that are in uh, that are in the subject. I mean, that, that's an excuse as far as that goes. They just don't want to ruin their reputation. The, the thing, right. the same thing with politicians. Uh, Stephen Greer getting up on on the White House lawn, or as close to he could possibly get to it, and and, and you know, and, and and pounding his chest and saying, you know, we demand an investigation. Ain't no politician going to touch this with a ten yeah. foot pole because it's too hot. I mean, politicians will do anything to get a vote. You and I know this. There ain't any UFO votes out there. You know, if if every UFO witness and everybody who claims they've had an encounter or an abduction actually marched on, you know, the White House and demanded it, it would be like, you know, the civil rights uh, movement or something, but they don't. The last time somebody tried to march on the White House and I was there, there were like, you know, 50 um, ufologists with the handwritten picket signs. <laughs> Unless the public demands that this subject be given serious attention, it will never be given serious attention. You can't take this into a laboratory and, and get a you know a Martian to materialize. They're going to have to do it on their own accord. And if you look at the subject and you study all of this, you begin to realize that what are we dealing here? We're dealing with mythology. We're dealing with spirituality. We're dealing with religion. We're dealing with an awful lot of taboo. And, and so nobody wants to rock the boat on this because it's totally unknown. UFOs are unidentified, and that's what makes them uh, so attractive to people because anybody can get out there and climb onto their soapbox and make any kind of comment that, uh, that they want. And, and so after a while, after 40 years of, uh, of doing this, you, you can't separate the truth from the, uh, the, the, the fantasy. And, and, that, and that's okay because if anything is ever going to come of this, at least to a large extent, it's going to be on the part of uh, those that, uh, that uh, pilot these craft or are involved with their manifestation. And you know something? UFOs are more than one thing. In fact, uh, you know, when you study this, you realize, okay, there may be some uh, spacecraft uh, coming here. I don't think that the majority of UFOs are from outer space. Uh, Roswell may have been a, a unique um, incident uh, that happened. And I'm not convinced that some of these, these objects that have been seen uh, since the late 1940s are not secret devices that were manufactured uh, or, or invented or, or being worked on uh, during the, uh, the Third Reich in, in Germany. I do believe that a, n a number of the scientists that were involved in experimentation on uh, disc-shaped craft were brought over here and later installed at Area 51 and have been continuing on with this technology that they developed, anti-gravity, free energy, call it what you want. So you've got that, you've got all kinds of psychic phenomena, phantasms, uh, you know, ghost lights, things that are all involved, and you wrap them up into one uh, package, and you call them UFOs, but they're all different things.
Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits this is the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney you never know what's going to happen next You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And if you want to contact us, send your messages, either short audio of up to 90 seconds or a written message to news at theparacast.com. You can visit our site, theparacast.com, and you can check out our message boards or download past episodes. We're talking with Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, and he has a publication called Conspiracy Journal. He's published over 150 books. He's written thousands of messages magazine articles. He's been following the UFO field for a long, long time. Writing back into the early years when we had NICAP, one of the things that caused people to look askance at that organization, as opposed to looking at it in any other fashion, is the fact that it was weighted so heavily with former military people. And some suggested if you send your stuff to NICAP, you're sending your stuff to possibly the government themselves. In fact, there was once a pun acronym of NICAP, which was National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and they call it No Investigations Can Actually Proceed <laughs> on the basis of that title that came from the late Ray Palmer, by the way. But what was you, I didn't realize that, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, what was your perception? He wrote an article about that, by the way. In fact, he talked about the visit that I made to NICAP headquarters with people like Alan Greenfield and Rick Hilberg, longtime UFO investigators. We were all in our late teens. Yeah, what, what, what year was that, Gene? This was in the mid-1960s. And well, because, um, NICAP, I, I believe, was at its peak around, what was it, about 1957, 1958? This was still at their peak, but at this point in time, Richard Hall was uh-huh. the acting uh-huh. director or the day-to-day manager. Kehoe came in there, but only part-time. It was right. Hall who ran the day-to-day Affairs and uh, some controversy think, arose about him too. You were well, telling you know, me. I, I just heard something about. I, I've only met Dick Hall once, and I did not. I, I, I've never particularly liked his, uh, uh, you know, egotistical uh, attitude uh, about every, you know, about himself. And uh, you know, it's like he's the only one that's ever done anything to to put, uh, you know, UFOs in a serious, uh, you know, light. Uh, yet I, I just heard recently somebody said on the air that they had uh, discovered the fact that Dick Hall had CIA affiliations and had been in the CIA at one point. And it's interesting kind of how some UFO organizations have been uh, infiltrated by these uh, so-called ex or retired uh, military uh, types. I don't know exactly what it what it means, but 
you know, again, I can't fault you know NICAP. You say not investigation. One of the things, of course, that has always hampered the field has been the lack of of, of funds to do any you know serious uh, the, the field investigation. But that's not to say uh, that it hasn't been done. I mean, uh, one of the the individuals that I that I uh, admire is a gentleman by the name of Ted Phillips, and he has probably made uh, more close examinations of UFO landing uh, spots than anyone else. He's analyzed soil samples, talked to the witnesses at length. Uh, in, in most of these cases, unless it happens to be like a golf breeze or something that gets out of control, I don't believe anybody today is really even bothering to interview any of the witnesses or document any of this stuff. They rely on what they read on the Internet and maybe in a few brief uh, news clippings. But one, of, one of the problems has always been really actual funding. And, you know, that's why, Gene, actually I got into the, uh, into the publishing uh, end of this because I realized if I wanted to do any serious work and, and travel here and there and, and, and call witnesses on, on the telephone and spend hours talking to them, I had to have some cash flow. So at least I made what started out maybe as a hobby into something that was a little bit more professional. And I also realized that in, in order to, to sell you know, merchandise and books, you've got to have a, a wide range of uh, subject and matter and different points of view because there are so many out there. You know, uh, the interplanetary uh, origin for UFOs is only popular, actually, among the so-called nuts and bolts and serious ufologists. If you take the, the general public, and I know this from book sales, what they're interested in is UFOs that come from the hollow earth, UFOs that may have been manufactured by uh, the, the Nazi uh, Germany. Those books sell ten times more than any anything about, uh, you know, Roswell or, or UFO uh, oh, uh, in uh, Randlesham Forest. And, and, and the, the more serious stuff, I tend to be you know more excited about when something comes out but from a professional standpoint that's not that's not what sells so basically people don't want any kind of truth that's what you're saying. Well, they don't. They don't want the truth. No, well, that's what well, no, you're I, saying. They want fantasy. They want fantasy. They can't handle the truth. What, what What is the truth? You know, your concept well, of the truth. Your concept of the truth may be totally different than the next guy. It's It's like religion. I'm How not talking about concept of truth. I'm talking about an actual understanding of the well, sourcing of these things. Well, okay. Well, now people may say that you know, yeah, uh, people that are into this and believe in the subject may say, yes, something happened in Roswell. But they may see it from a different. They may see well, no, but but you just aspect. use the word belief. I don't want to believe a damn thing. I want to understand and know. You can believe in any nonsense. Anybody can believe in any nonsense okay, that they want. You're, you're, right? you're probably what you're probably one of the uh, uh, maybe ten percent of the world's population who who actually have. Uh, some interest in delving into into something. Most people believe what they're told or what they've been brought up to uh, to believe, and there's no deviation from that. I mean, I, I see that. I, I'm not a I, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. But you sit down and you talk to people, and this is what they believe. Boom, boom, boom. And right. there is no other. There is no other truth in the world. They do not want to hear any evidence. They they have blinders on. And it's the same about yeah. ufologies. Ufology. When a person gets into the field, they probably have some preconceived idea about what it, what it's about, and they want to find everything that supports that particular belief. Sure, and absolutely.
and you know something? There's enough evidence to support any belief that you want out there. Just like there is in, 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 in religion, all you can say about UFOs is that they are identified and there's some unexplained phenomena that has been with us since the beginning of mankind and probably will be with us longer after mankind ceases to exist and has always existed right here alongside of us. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David B. Edney. And if you need to contact us, we welcome your letters or short audio files of up to 90 seconds in MP3 format. Send it to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website, thepowercast.com, and discover our message boards or download past episodes of the show. Our associate producer, an old friend of mine for many, 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 many we, we years. We know each other right outside of the crib, I think. I think just a couple of days after the crib, we got together and started oh, yelling at each I, other. I, 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 we, we started in this, I, I believe you may be a year or two older than I am, but we started to, uh, in this as teenage ufologists. And if you remember at the time, Gene, how many were, uh, there was even a uh, uh, an affiliation or, or conglomeration of teen UFO organizations. I can't remember what we called ourselves, remember? But there, there was Dale Reddig, and um, there was Rick Hilberg, who of course is still somewhat active in the field, and there was another fellow from Iowa, and I can't remember what his name is. Uh, Alan uh, Greenfield, okay. of course, and Alan, Alan Greenfield. Alan Greenfield I still talk to. He's into uh, occultism and mysticism today, but we still stay in, in, in touch, and of course most of the other guys have kind of like passed on into uh, obscurity, but uh, they, they, you know, they were out there, and uh, uh, there were a lot of teenagers that were in interested in the subject because I guess when we were growing up we all had something happen to us when we were very young and I think you've pointed mm-hmm. that out in the uh, in the show and it's mm-hmm. something that kind of just uh, attached itself to it uh, to almost like but a, you know it's strange I was over at the crash retrieval conference in Las yes. Vegas a couple of weeks mm-hmm. back and it was well attended it was very successful interesting speeches don't say I've learned a lot of new stuff but a lot yes. of interesting speeches but I noticed that just about everybody there was a baby boy not too yep. many people under 40. Mm-hmm. Most yep. of the people were older people. And I wondered, are teenagers today getting interested in this subject, or do they even care? Well, you know, now I, 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 most of my friends are uh, half my age or younger. I, I promote some rock music. So I, I, I meet a lot of people that are... Um, uh, you know, fairly young in their, in their 20s and and so forth. I, I would say they have, you know, they have an interest in the subject, but they get it all on the on the internet for free, uh, and uh, they may have seen the, you know, quite a few shows on the History Channel or on the Discovery Channel or something like that. They are acquainted with the subject, but to get them to go out and buy a book or a magazine on UFOs or perhaps anything uh, these days is fairly difficult. I, I mean, uh, most of my friends, if I give them a 
copy of a magazine, they'll point out, oh, this is my friend, Mr. UFO, look, he's in the magazine. But I don't know if they actually sit there and, and read the subject. They're mm. interested in, in a peripheral uh, sort of way, but not to go out and, and, and investigate it. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's what I find. And not to spend any, you know, not to send donations to NICAP or, or, or anybody else. Yeah, there may be something to UFOs, and hey, they know this guy that's uh, involved in the subject, and he's pretty hip for somebody, uh, you know, who's, uh, who sees UFOs and stuff. But no, I would, I would say it, it doesn't seem to be something that fascinates, because it's not something that they grew up with. They, they've grown up with computer games and, and, and things like that. So that's what, that's what fascinates them, you know. And uh, so this is, this is kind of working on the side of the UFOs, because as long as it remains a secret, a secret then these objects can come and go and, and do what they want without anybody hindering them. Well, over the years, things erupt to raise interest. Like, for example, we had the MJ-12 documents in the 1980s. And some believe they were real. Some believe it was all government disinformation. Well, well, you know, Gene, I've got a book out that you can get on uh, Amazon. Uh, It's called MJ-12 and the Riddle of Hangar 18. Now, I've got my theory about uh, MJ-12. I I do not believe that uh, that, uh, most or any of the recent documents in the last, let's say, decade or so are legitimate. The original ones, I believe, are copies of something that somebody may have seen. I'm not so much as convinced as I was when they first uh, came out, because uh, we, we've come to see that some of the people that were involved in this, like uh, Bill Moore, uh, are uh, basically spreading disinformation. Richard Doty, disinformation. Uh-huh. And hmm. It, it, it kind of clouds the field, and you say, well, heck, even if there's something there, uh, look at the people who have associated themselves with this and pushed this. I, I do believe that... Uh, that uh, if I were to point a, a finger, I, I would point it at Doty as having been the one responsible for uh, MJ-12. And in fact, we can pretty much almost say that with a certainty because uh, Linda Howe, who was in his his office, were shown was shown these documents or or something very similar uh, to them before they were released uh, to the public by uh, B- uh, Bill Moore. So I, I think the the MJ-12 documents, uh, you know, kind of a start to uh, lead a path back to, to Doty. Well, the other thing about William Moore, now, William Moore was one of the people who was responsible for bringing public attention to the MJ-12 documents in the 1980s, but he admitted during one speech that he had engaged in some sort of disinformation that he was promised by a government operative, and I don't know whether that was Richard Doty or not, that if he engaged in participation, he cooperated with them, he would get more information. In the end, he was basically helped one UFO witness investigator go off the deep end, but I don't think he ever got any more information. Paul Benowitz, right. I gotta stop you guys for a minute because we're getting all wrapped up in personalities again, which is good and fine. That's the but problem. I think, I, I think our listeners get really bored with personalities, and they want to understand yes. the phenomenon. So when you mm-hmm. talk about this guy Doty, and we talk about that he's spreading disinformation, why? What is? If there was nothing to hide, why is there someone engaged in disseminating disinformation? <laughs> I mean. This is like, you know, when we talk about, okay, there are people out there, they're throwing all this noise out there. They're basically creating diversions and distractions. From what? Some of them are doing it just because they like the attention. Right. 
I, I would say that that's a large uh, a part of it, and it certainly does attract attention. I, I, if, if, if Dodie is listening to his to the show, I'm sure he's sitting there uh, smiling and laughing and saying, "Look at these guys! Whether the, the documents are real or or, or uh, they're fraudulent, they're spending ten minutes talking about me." Hmm. Well, we asked him to come on the show once, and he said no. Yep. So I think mm -hmm. he lost his opportunity. In all fairness, I certainly, because of the fact that he has been criticized, I would give him a chance to respond, but I yep. don't think he's going to mm -hmm. take it. Yeah. No, I, I'm, sh I'm sure he won't. So basically, there's no reason for us to be doing the show then, because we're not going to get, we're not going to ever get to any real information. Well, I, I don't want to be a downer, but not, well, you, you are getting, you are getting the information. You've got reams of information. We've had reams of information for, for four. 40 years. What does the reams of information tell us? It tells us that there are UFOs and that they are uh, unexplained and that people use them to fortify their own belief systems. Mm -hmm. And and, and 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 that's okay. I mean, that's what that's what we know about it. I mean, so it is something that has affected the lives of millions of people. It, it's it's it, there's no doubt about that. And no matter what the government say, says, no matter what the, the Vatican says, or religious authorities say that these are demons and this, that, the other thing, the people that have had these observations and have these experiences know that something is going on. What is going on, though? I, I don't think anybody really knows. We could just speculate, sit here and speculate. And that's why the, there's so much, uh, you know, like uh, speculation in the field because the, the hard evidence is yes, there is something, but you can't put your hands on it. And if it were a real, tangible object from outer space, and these people, you know, wanted to to, to uh, know that they existed, they would they would have landed or made open contact. The center right. and point uh, uh, telescopes at the heavens and try to pick up a ra uh, radio signals is nonsense. And, and people say, well, astronomers, uh, why don't astronomers see UFOs? Well, first of all, astronomers uh, have uh, seen uh, UFOs. Uh, even the uh, the uh, t um, Professor Tombe, who discovered the planet Pluto, which is no longer a planet, maybe they did that because <laughs> he was a, a UFO observer. You know, he, he saw quite a few uh, UFOs. It's the silence maybe, group's revenge. Maybe, maybe that maybe that's his punishment. Hmm. For taking uh, Pluto out of the solar, solar system. <laughs> well, that's it. Now he's, he's now shaking in his grave over over oh, that. Man. But the other thing that makes it difficult is: are some of these UFO sightings themselves disinformation, either government secret weapons? What about the abduction scenario? Is it a hypnotist making someone think yeah. they've been abducted, or is it some kind of government project? And we're hearing some of the latter. Well, I, I, I think perhaps it's a combination of, of, of all of that and, and maybe other things as, as well. I would say, from what I know, and, and I know a few abductees, quite a few I've met over the years, dated a few, uh, actually. I can't uh, do tell. Say, <laughs> I, 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 I can't say that I disbelieve their stories. On the other hand, I do know that most of these people go in uh, to a uh, you know to see a therapist or a hypnotist with the idea in mind that something has happened to them yes something has happened to them so they sit there and they eventually evolve a scenario or a story that is acceptable to themselves but it is not necessarily and probably not the truth mm -hmm. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of...
mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your letters or short MP3 audio files of up to 90 seconds each to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. At thepowercast.com, you can check out our message boards on a variety of topics, 2,000 messages and growing, or download past episodes of the show. We're talking today to Tim Beckley, our associate producer, about a variety of subjects, and I guess we were going to start with just saying that the UFO field is going to hell in a breadbasket, and that the things that we do are not accomplishing anything, and I don't want to sound pessimistic well, about that. Well, you know, but yet we still continue to do it, I guess, in the hopes that it, it will lead to, to, to something. Gina, I just wanted to, uh, to throw in a plug for a mutual friend uh, of ours. Sure. UFO, UFO magazine. Now, up until recently, uh, any time that I would be mentioned in UFO magazine would be in a derogatory uh, manner by the former editor and publisher. But now that Bill and Nancy have taken over the helm of the publication, it seems to be going in an entirely different direction. And the articles are getting better, and the artwork and layout is better, and finally there's something to read in the publication. And I've started writing for UFO magazine, and in the November issue, which is the issue that would be on sale now, you will find an article that I've written called Tim Beckley, the Extreme Ufologist. And so finally I'm, I'm, I'm starting to air, you know, because I've been so busy publishing other people's literature and all, I, I have to admit that over the last decade or so, I haven't written very much on my own. You know, uh, the uh, the magazines that used to exist in the field, they just don't exist anymore. They've all kind of gone uh, uh, under, and the reason for that is not lack of uh, interest so much, and it's the, the fact that the whole distribution scenario about how magazines and newspapers are put out there on the newsstands have changed. It's collapsed except for a few small companies that run everything. Yes. That, 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 you know, when I first started, uh, I published back in the, er the early 1970s. Uh, of course, I, I started publishing when I was a teenager. You remember, Gene, we all had our own little publications. Right. And I had the Interplanetary News Service Report. I went out and bought a mimeograph uh, machine and started putting out this uh, uh, a publication that started out as 10 pages and 
grew to be about 50 pages. Well, in those days, there was no quick copy shops, and you had to print and collate it by hand. And boy, was that a mess, let me tell you. In fact, it got to the point we actually, our organization grew to have uh, 1,400 members, and some of those that were on our uh, non-paid staff in those days included Jerry Clark, who, of course, was involved with the uh, uh, Dr. Hynek's uh, uh, group, uh, um, and uh, Lucius Ferris, who puts on the very well-received uh, Arkansas UFO conference, and, and a bunch of uh, the other people who were very enthusiastic about the subject at the, at the time. And we built the circulation up to about 14 or 1,500 copies, and it's just got too much to do, uh, that the Jim Mosley, uh, Jim Mosley, a saucer news site, made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. He offered to take uh, my subscriptions and combine those with the saucer news, which had a, a subscription base in those days, about 10,000. Uh, Jim had more UFO subscribers than any other UFO magazine in history, uh, actually, because he was getting on kitty shows. I mean, he was on Long John all the time, and he was on Terry Bennett. And in those days, I guess, uh, you know, the teenagers and young teens were interested in the subject, and Jim told them if they sent him $2, he'd put him on the mailing list. And I think he got about 8,000 subscribers from that. And so Jim had a fairly big publishing company, and he was selling books and all, and he was over here on Fifth Avenue, and he said, you know, if you give me my subscribers, because that way you can sell, uh, you know, ads for the magazine and all, uh, he hired me as his um, managing editor. That's how you replaced so me. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, possibly so, yeah, yeah. And uh, after that, I, I got into the publishing field, and over the years have edited, or actually packaged is a professional word, about 30 different titles, and not even related to UFOs, even though I did a UFO Universe myself, which started out as a newspaper. I did the UFO Universe for a GCR publishing that was on the newsstand for 11 years. And I packaged about 30 other different magazines, everything from moped action to a football magazine. Let's take some action into the UFO field here. Let's get back into the UFO field. Okay, we're in 2006, coming close okay. to 2007. So what do we do, man? to get this thing off dead center, to stop all the carping about Project Serpo, which I think most people agree is a lot of nonsense, to well, stop you know, the carping still after all these years about Billy yeah. Meyer, the M-word. Yeah. What do we do, man? Well, maybe maybe ignore them. In, in fact, I guess that was always my attitude. Uh, you know, in all the magazines that I, uh, that I uh, published, I figured, well, you know, the general public probably isn't interested in, in our um, um, uh, attitude towards Billy Meyer. If they want to believe Billy Meyer, they're going to buy his book, and they're going to believe it no matter what you tell them. So if you just think that somebody is corrupting the field, maybe the best thing to do is to ignore them. Yeah, because you don't want to spend, first of all, you don't want to spend... Sure, you ignore them, but then what? where do we turn our attention? We ignore the stuff that's obviously bogus, okay. but where do we turn for some okay. understanding? Here's, okay, here's what I would do. I mm -hmm. would spend more time calling witnesses and people who have actually had experiences than I would call uh, people who... Um, uh, you know, who uh, collect the data on this. I'd get on the phone and I would, uh, you know, the, here's an incident that took place, let's say, in, in, in Florida last week or two weeks ago where somebody saw something and it came over their uh, their uh, orange uh, growth. Call them on the phone and let's hear firsthand what they had to say. Let's not hear it second and third hand. I, mm -hmm. I think that, that, I think that, that would um, uh, would help a lot because basically what, what are we doing here, uh, fellas? We're preaching to the choir. Right. 
and we're, 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 we're talking to the same people and hearing pretty much the same stories that we heard uh, 40 years ago, except right. that Major Kehoe is now Stephen Greer. Right. We've done that. We've had a guest on a couple of times by the name of Jeff Ritzman, a uh, fascinating character who um, has had some very unusual, very, very unusual experiences and who's uh, very serious about the topic. He's a combination of an experiencer and a researcher. And it's, it's hard to find those people, though, you know? It's really I, tough I to find people I who are I credible. Don't know, I, don't know, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you, because I used to uh, write articles for uh, Saga and UFO Report, and, and they, pay, they paid a decent amount of money. I, I mean, in those days for articles, you're lucky if you get 50 bucks today for a story, but we're not doing this for the money, so that doesn't matter. But, you know, I spent hours and hours on the telephone taping interviews uh, with people who had these experiences. I mean, I'd, I'd find a little clipping in Lucius Farish's journal somewhere, and I'd say, wow, this is an incident. Let me tell you, for example, there was an incident, and it was a very small little article, maybe three inches somewhere, and I can't remember where I originally saw it, you know. It was an article uh, that told about how a UFO had landed in a, a farmer's cornfield in... Ohio, I think it was. Yeah, Ohio. All right. And uh, had left uh, some uh, impressions in the ground. Now, I was going out to Ohio. I was, wor uh, I was working for uh, one of the men's magazines at the time. And the editor of the magazine, who was a gal, uh, her name was uh, Karen, uh, lived in Ohio. So she had invited me out to you know, her, her place there in the country uh, for a few days. And oh, I yeah? said, well, this isn't, okay, well, this, <laughs> this, isn't, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't far from where this incident happened. It was in the town of, I believe, Athens, Ohio, some small town, little town. Okay, we got out there, and we found the farmer. All right, and he said his grandson had seen some lights the night before. I, I still got a file on this somewhere. You know, if I want to find the exact detail, I had had uh, had seen some lights in the field, and they had gone out there the next day, and uh, there was some uh, depression in the um, in the corn, and they found uh, spots where it looked like three tripod landing gear had landed. Now, hmm. this was long before crop circles in in England. Uh, in those days, we had I guess what they called saucer nests or saucer pads. They were not elaborately uh, uh, formed um, symbols and all like you see uh, today. They were rather crude, but it looked like something had landed there. The, the corn had been crushed down, considerable weight, blah, blah, blah. All right, so I said, now, I'm, I, here I am. I've talked to this fellow. The object was here two weeks before. What do I do to verify this? So I started by knocking on neighbors' doors, something that nobody does anymore. And you know what Makes I found sense. out? What? You, know, you know what I found out? That most of the people were not even aware of the sightings, but they had their own experiences to relate. Mm. There mm. was somebody who said, well, I don't know about anything landing there, but let me tell you about this long cigar-shaped object that I saw in the sky six months ago. Somebody else said, you know, I haven't seen any UFOs, but Bigfoot was back behind the house and even left impressions in the ground underneath the soft earth uh, by the air you know, where the air conditioner drip water or something like that. Where, and then some other lady, she said, I can't let you in the house because I don't want to talk to this, talk to anybody about this. And she proceeded to talk to me for half an hour through the screen door about the messages she was channeling from the, from space people. So nice. if somebody got out there and, and done some actual investigation, you'd find And John Keel, uh, uh, who, uh, of course, is a... Uh, 
uh, was a field investigator in those days, was the kind of the one to kind of open the door to all of this so that we would begin to ask questions uh, rather than just say, well, what did you see, you know, in the sky? We began to realize that there might be something more, uh, you know, something strange or related to this. So wherever I went, I talked to people and I recorded this and, and, and I took notes on it and I published it in, um, in Saga magazine. Now, uh, recently I put all these articles uh, together in a, in a book which can be gotten on Amazon or through us called Strange Saga. And it's all the early columns that I did for Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers magazine. And I think the 10 or 12 of the really, really lengthy investigative pieces that I did for Saga. And this was field research. Ain't nobody doing field research today. Speaking of field research, now John Keel had a heart attack recently. Of course, we all yes. remember John Keel is the author of the Mothman Prophecies and many other books. You talked to him recently. How's he doing? Well, actually, I, I talked to him um, uh, about uh, two nights ago. Mm -hmm. And he was in the hospital for quite some time, and then he had to go in for therapy and all. And he is uh, able to get up and about, and he's walking around the uh, the neighborhood and doing a little bit of shopping. He says he does tire, uh, you know, very easy. But he said he's, he's, he's going to recover. Good. That's very good. That's that's Tim, where do we go to get more information about your stuff? Well, you can either, if you want to get, uh, I'll make this offer to the listeners of the Paracast. If you want a free DVD uh, with... Um, uh, actually contains trailers of my horror movies as well as a half an hour interview <laughs> with me as Mr. UFO and we talk about the Shaver mystery and we talk about some of the paranormal aspects of this and I'll send you a free subscription to our uh, newsletter, The Conspiracy Journal. Just go to the uh, uh, your email and send me an email at Mr. UFO MR UFO 8 at Hotmail.com That's Mr. MR UFO 8 at Hotmail.com Thank you very much, Tim Beckley, associate producer of the Paracast, for the reminiscencing about the <laughs> early days of UFOs and about the state of UFO research, and thanks for joining us. You betcha. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Coming up next on the PowerCast, we're going to challenge your belief systems. We're going to talk to Acharya S. She's the author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. Now, I know that some of you are certainly devout in your beliefs, and I respect that. But I also ask you to give her a fair hearing. And that's coming up next on the PowerCast. Welcome back to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. 
It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know, with, of course, the Da Vinci Code now available in DVD, people are talking again about various religious elements. But now let's talk about the fundamentals, the fundamental story. Was there really a Jesus Christ? Acharya S., what do you have to say about that? (laughs) Jump right in there, Gene. (laughs) Well, my work over the past decade now online has been to show that the story in the uh, Gospels in the New Testament is not based on historical fact. So I have spilled much ink on demonstrating that Jesus Christ is a fictional character. Uh, I have done that in a myriad of ways, one of which is to show precedents in other religions, in other cultures, from around the known world at the time, God-men, dying and rising saviors, born of virgin characters, real and legendary, mythical. Uh, many people were born of gods and a mortal woman, such as Hercules. Zeus, Hercules' father, was called the father, Zeus Pateras, God the father, long before the Christian era. So we had a God the father figure giving birth to children on the planet Earth uh, in several cultures. And uh, there are many other correspondences between the Christ character as accepted through biblical tradition and through traditions such as Christmas, which is not not mentioned by date in the in the Bible. Easter also has a roving date, the 14th to 15th of Nisan. And there are Easter traditions that go back for thousands of years, and they have a similar theme, very similar. And when you start looking at all of these things, and you look at the, the sayings that are attributed to Jesus in the Gospel, New Testament, they, you, these can be traced to older texts as well. Some of them are in the Catholic Bible, which differs from the Protestant. When you start looking at all the different elements of the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ, you find that it's a patchwork of everything that preceded, that there's no evidence, contemporary evidence, and that's really the only evidence there, there could be of significant value of the existence of Jesus Christ. In, there's no doc, documentary or literary record of this character having existed in real time and space on planet Earth in the third dimension 2,000 years ago. None at all? None. There are some very late references that are quite questionable in their authenticity, and but not a single eyewitness account. The four canonical Gospels claim to be eyewitness accounts. Right. But the question of when they appeared in the historical record is almost never addressed. And when it is, it's very uncomfortable because the earliest that they could possibly have existed based on our literary record is the last quarter of the second century. I'm not kidding you. You can't find a single reference to a Gospel of Luke before that time in 
and all of the church fathers' writings up to that point, including Justin Martyr, who was very prolific. There's no mention of these four Gospels before the end of the second century. The second century. Long after any of them, the actual apostles would have been dead. Yeah. There's some internal clues in the Gospel of John that this was written long after he would have logically been alive. And they try to extend his life ridiculously. He was 100, he was 110, he was 120. And it's deliberately contrived in the Gospel. You can see this. So I've gone through the texts. I've gone through the, the mythologies, picked it apart. Here's where this element comes from. Here's where that one comes from. And then I most recently wrote a book. I haven't put it into hard copy yet. It's available ebook called Who Was Jesus? Where I go through the gospel, the gospels one at a time, and I pull out elements that are don't look really convincing historically. But they also there's also a lot of offensive stuff in there that it's not getting out to the masses who go in on Sundays and listen for an hour and. Then they watch the movies with the sweet baby Jesus being born in a manger and so forth, and they have a whole emotional tie to it. People constantly project their own emotions, their own feelings of uh, what is valuable in a human being onto the Christ character. Hmm. This is how this character has been developed over the centuries and why so many people relate to him, because they project themselves on it. What do you value the most in a human being? That's what he represented the most. And so they go into the text and find any kind of references that could uphold that impression. It runs the gamut of who Jesus Christ was. Okay, he's an alien. That's a big one. In <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. This show is especially attuned oh, to that. Man. <laughs> Yeah, an alien. I heard I, there's somebody said they thought he was a tattoo artist. I mean, it gets so ridiculous. It's so important. Wow. Massage therapists, therapist healers, they all think that he was a great healer. I've heard people who are into tax protesting think he was a tax protester, even though he tells Caesar to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, which refers to money. And he's very pro-government in giving your money away. So he was involved with the IRS back <laughs> 2,000 oh, years ago. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, on the PowerCast, we're talking to Acharya S., and she is the author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And you can tell by what she says in the book's title what this is about, which is that Jesus Christ did not exist as a real person. Now, going back into these legends of a Savior back through the centuries, even prior to the Christ era, so-called, do you think that there was any sort of person or entity who triggered these beliefs, or what? Why are they so uniform among different cultures? This is where it gets very exciting, and this is where my second book, Sons of God, Krishna, Buddha, and Christ Unveiled, comes in. Oh, by the way, my the first one, Christ Conspiracy, is now it's been translated into Spanish for the last year or so, and now it's going to be translated into Korean. So this is kind of cool. <laughs> but, <laughs> so anyway, uh, to me, the most exciting thing about everything I do, uh, uncovering this and that, myths and conspiracies, whatever, uncovering it all, is to find out what it all means and what it stands for. And that's that's the meaning of behind mythology. Why do we have mythology? And mind you, what we call mythology today, let's say 2,500 years ago, you were, uh, you'd be a disciple of Hercules. And I'm not kidding you. It sounds ridiculous because today it's a cartoon character. Back then, he was every bit as real to the people as Jesus Christ is today. And it has similar hmm. exploits, rising from the dead and you know, being born of a mortal and a woman and a, a 
Divine Father, uh, swaddling clothes. Uh, There's 12, this number 12 is very prominent in both figures. And one of the reasons why, the big reason why all of this, all these similarities, is because they're both sun gods. They're solar myths. They are. Uh, they have aspects of solar mythology all over them. And uh, Hercules was thought was believed to be a real person who had lived on the Earth. Thousands, many thousands of people believed this all around the Mediterranean. Very popular cult, the cult of Hercules. It actually, there's essence of it going back to you know 3,000 years ago. And uh, so it was at least a thousand years old. I think there is more evidence that Hercules is even older than that as an aspect of, uh, of other gods around the Mediterranean, including in Egypt. So we have this god worshipped by the Phoenicians that take him as far as uh, Africa, maybe even British Isles, where they're being found to have, have landed and established colonies. The Phoenicians, this is something that, by the way, that was well known to the scholars of the 19th century, that the Phoenicians had been to the British Isles. And they had done tin mining there, uh, hundreds of years, if not a thousand or more years before the Christian era. And that these languages that we find are all coalescing all over the place. You've got Indo-European languages, the British Isles, uh, ancient, ancient Irish is supposedly closely related to Sanskrit. And, uh, and of course, this is Indo-European languages. But what is amusing is with all this, this um, cultural um, uh, merging, it's always really held as being very, very skeptical. That people are very skeptical that any of the religion was shared too. <laughs> when in fact it's quite clear that these religions are all coming together because the, the languages are uh, from one root, and they go back. These ideas go back tens of thousands of years because they're rooted in astrotheology, which is the study of not only the sun and its movements, but also the moon and all the stars and the planets, including the Earth, uh, and so on, and the constellations. Anything that comes through the sky like a comet or a meteor, these are all factored into uh, the mythologies of the ancient world. And what I'm, what I'm uncovering and displaying as much as I can is that our modern traditions are also rooted in astrotheology. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And if you need to reach us or want to reach us, send your messages, audio or written, to news at thepowercast.com. Visit thepowercast.com. Check out our message boards or download past episodes of the show. We're talking to Acharya S. She's author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. So basically, these are all 
these legends are all based on some earthly, primitive interpretation of the phenomena we see in the sky, the sun, the moon, etc. Is that what you're saying? I'd say that a large percentage of the miraculous events that we hold to be sacred are depictions of what occurs as above, so below, <laughs> and uh, and that that's how they explain their ubiquity around the world and why they are considered to be so divine because if you if you try to project yourself back about 5000 years the favorite spot i've that has taken me back there so many times when i think about it it's called katahayak in turkey and it's very old like 6000 years old that there are more 6000 bce i think uh, that they have found a fairly high culture there and it has touches of what became the Cretan culture and then influenced Greece and so forth. It's, so it's an Anatolian culture, Asian Minor, and it's probably an ancient Semitic. Uh, maybe not, though, because there was all kinds of Indo-European movement going on, and that was so long ago that, well, that whole area in there is a real melting pot going back a long time. But the imagery of it is just really peaceful and so picture yourself back in a place like that and you're sitting on a hill very verdant everything is vibrating it's all clean there's no pollution there's no roads there's no loud noises you're sitting on a hill it's totally quiet other than the wind in the in the trees and or a mountaintop wherever in the world and you're seeing the stars of the night sky it's a very dramatic experience. I've done it myself. I've done it since a child. Since I was a child, it's just—it's like—it's uh, overwhelming. It's exciting. It's cosmic. So of course, the people among us—if we're going back, let's go back ten thousand years. Let's go back hundred thousand years. Now we still have Homo sapiens sapiens. So we have—we have the same brain power that we have today. There are geniuses in these in these uh, groups of people. Some some of the cultures are more advanced than others that you see around the world uh, 10,000, 20,000 years ago. You have people doing those marvelous cave paintings hmm. in Altamira and Lascaux and very, uh, many other places around the world. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. It, reach, it reaches a high peak 20,000, 30,000 years ago. It was just fabulous. So there, of course, you're, you're talking also leisure time. So you have a high, culture, high enough culture that there must be some kind of agriculture or concerted efforts to allow some people to have leisure time to go and paint. Those are very intricate paintings. They took time to do. And then to get to develop to that point, too, there had to be a lot of time ex expended on artistic endeavors. So with that culture goes a storytelling, and it incorporates anything cosmic, of course, that is going to come its way, that, that the mind is going to latch on to and, and be lightened up by. And then the sun itself is being observed. All these things are being observed as having influence on Earth, and this is where astrology comes in. But astrology is much bigger if you put it into the astrotheological framework. It's not just casting horoscopes. It has to do with uh, influences even of the of the sun on the Earth, which are quite visible. You see the sun's rays go down. You feel the heat. They're they're quite tangible. And then you see a plant growing up, and it's miraculous. You have planted a little seed, maybe even a very small seed, like a mustard seed, and this, and something grows out of this tiny thing. Where is it coming from? Well, the sun is doing it. The sun and water and the earth itself. And uh, But the sun's rays going into the earth, penetrating it, are said to bring life. And this is why Easter is at the time of resurrection of life from the death of winter. That's why the Christian story has placed the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter time. 
because that was the traditional celebration of the resurrection of life prior to the Christian era. And we find this all over the place. Uh, and mm. these gods that uh, even the, the, the day, the March 24th, 25th, was the day, said to be the, the, traditionally the day of resurrection for Christ, when it's not roving. The roving date tells you something because it has to do with the full moon and other aspects of astrotheology. And these are mentioned in the earlier, uh, by early Christian writers. Uh, the computations that they've made of the Easter date, they actually would bring in astrotheology. It's done because the moon is at this time in, in the third quarter, or it's it's uh, it's waning, and and so then you have this this um, vernal equinox connection going on because March 24th or 5th is the third day after the start of the equinox, and at that point so during these these equinoxes and the solstices, the sun was said solstice means sun stands still. At this at these points. The sun appears to be setting at the same time or at high noon at the same time on the sundial or where you are situated. If you lie down in the sun, your shadow will be a certain length going in the same direction. And then after three days, the sun starts to move again. So it would be like March 24th at midnight would be when the sun is resurrected. That means that the sun now is going towards the summer solstice. It is, it is finally overcome the darkness of night and winter. Uh, because all that time it's struggling. It's shortest day. The sun is being born on December 25th. It's the shortest day of the year. It's the 22nd, 21st. Three days later, the sun starts to be born again, and it comes. It starts to be ha- make a struggle with the night time to overcome the length of the night and the day. And eventually, when it hits the, the summer, the vernal equinox, the length of the day and the night are the same. It's equinoxes. They're equal. Equal night. Equinox. Just guessing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, <laughs> that works. That's good. Hey, so, so basically we're yeah. taking all of this phenomena that primitive man tried to put this in the hands of gods who created all these things they couldn't understand. But let's look at the Christ conspiracy so-called. Now, who devised this conspiracy and what mm-hmm. was the purpose of this conspiracy? Well, if you go back that far and you start looking, you start that far back and start looking out forward in time, and you start seeing that this whole, all of this stuff is being woven together into stories, marvelous stories, magnificent stories that are actually kind of ridiculous and incomprehensible if you don't have these astrotheological underpinnings. So you, then you see a priesthood start to develop, and I'm convinced that these higher IQ people back, way back, who were doing the wonderful drawings and and had been making these observations of nature, that they also, uh, many of them would become high priests in a sense. Or, in fact, they were certainly viewed as as priestly. They may be the ones who are telling the stories. And so they're gathering people, they're having, they're getting a modicum of power, and then it increases like that. Uh, Maybe people start bringing them things because they think they have magical powers. So you have priesthoods going back, way back when. Neanderthal man looks like uh, he's had uh, sacred rituals done around around bones and, and remains. Mm-hmm. So we have them even in in that kind of culture, which is supposed to be not as intelligent as Homo sapiens sapiens. However, this goes on these concerted efforts. Now you're 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 having cultures clashing as the time goes on, and they're emerging and they're exchanging ideas and observations. And uh, it starts off as clans, and then it becomes cultures and so forth, and goes on. Then you get ethnicities and and religions that are more set in stone as each group becomes more uniform in it, within itself. 
And under underlying all of this, though, then again, we have the astrotheology that it's developed out of. So by the time we get to the Christian era, we have a very vibrant cultural exchange going on around the Mediterranean between a whole bunch of different ethnicities and religions. And they have a lot of similarities, though. So what had been done before was done again, which is that there's well-practiced priestcraft in taking a bunch of diverse peoples, weaving their stories together, creating figureheads for them. It's been going on. It's been going on for thousands of years. It went on all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, it's even depicted, depicted in, the, in the Old Testament, which has got a tremendous pretense to being a, uh, a book recording the, re- the development of religion at that time. So you see all this precedent going on, and it, it gets highly developed during the Christian era because there was this amazing cultural exchange going on between the East and the West. It had already been going on, uh, as we see with the, with the spread of the Indo-European languages which appear to have come out of the same space in Anatolia that I was discussing earlier. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We welcome your response. Send your messages audio up to 90 seconds in MP3 format or written to news at thepowercast.com. If you visit thepowercast.com, you can check out our discussion forums, download past episodes of the show, and all that stuff. We're talking to Acharya S. She is the author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And we're talking about how the priesthood, the early Christian priesthood, was putting these stories together to create this belief system. For what motivation? To get their 10% of the proceeds from the populace? Well, before you even ask that question, something that um, that I'm hearing here, and this is a, a theme that lately I've been really interested in, Acharya, um, in your studies of this, does it seem that there is a huge amount of human history that has essentially been either forgotten or destroyed? I mean, if one looks at what happened in Carthage or one looks at the destruction of the library at Alexandria, it seems like there's this huge amount of human history, documentation, that essentially has been annihilated, that perhaps could help fill in some of these gaps. And Help us understand as you talk about earlier origins of the, uh, you know, sort of of the the elements that we see around the Christ story. I'm also wondering if any of those are included in the Torah, and um, and if you think that perhaps there there is indeed some some real history of humanity that has essentially been lost. Oh, 
sure, of course. Oh, a huge amount has been absolutely destroyed, annihilated, beyond even finding remains of it. And that, that mm-hmm. makes everything, of course, extremely difficult. Yeah. That's why there's uh, why there are archaeologists and anthropologists trying to piece all our history together. And we have to do it. Yeah, sure. I mean, destruction of lots of warfare, deliberate stuff. Sure, the, the Library of Alexandria was deliberately burned three times. Actually, the first time it was not deliberate. And the one by the uh, Christians in the 4th century was quite deliberate. And then there was the later one by the Muslims. But uh, that that in itself represents such a loss of culture and history that you, we cannot even fathom. Yeah. There were also some, like in China, some um, libraries there that uh, I think it's the guy who started the building the Great Wall decided to go on a censorship rampage and destroyed who knows how many texts in China. So, uh, yeah, air estimates, and I don't know what they're based on, but they sound at least very conservative, that human beings were set back at least a thousand years when the Library of Alexandria was destroyed. And I'd be willing to bet, of course, that much of what I'm talking about would be found there. Right, right. Uh, and um, you can't find bits and pieces of it. You asked about the Torah. Yes, there are elements in there. I go into that in both my books. Joshua is a big figure, big factor in, in the Christ story. The name Joshua is Jesus in Greek, and the Greek readers of the uh, Old Testament prior to the Christian era for three centuries, according to tradition, we're reading the name Joshua as Jesus. So we have this great Jesus hero leading the chosen people into Israel. And uh, there's many other similarities in there. And then there are other Jesuses who are also called Joshua, but they're in the tra- Greek translation, the Septuagint. They are called Jesus. We have other ones in there, too, like the, the high priest Jesus, uh, Joshua. So when you're looking at in the Old Testament, you're seeing this word Joshua in there. Remember that in the Greek New Testament, Greek, uh, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is supposedly translated in the third century before the Christian era, that the readers or the listeners to the stories that the priests were reading them would be hearing Jesus, and they would be hearing Jesus over and over and over again, or Aesus, not Jesus, because that's you know that nice. That tremendously complicates then everything. I mean, that that introduces so much of a possibility that streams got crossed. Oh, yes, and there's also text called the Wisdom of Jesus, Ecclesiasticus, which is found in the, the Catholic Bible. So that was actually a canonical, canonical text to the Catholics, it's not to the Protestants. And this was a pre-Christian text, the Wisdom of Jesus. You can find some similarities between the, the sayings of Jesus in the New Testament and that pre-Christian text with all these sayings in it, sayings of Jesus. Sayings of Jesus were common before the Christian era. That text proves it. Uh, and I would, I would say that it extended into other cultures as well, because in, in Greek we had the IE or the IES uh, being an epithet of Asclepius, Apollo, Dionysus. So that's before the Christian era. You're already calling your gods IES and you're calling your sacred heroes. Joshua ha- ha- was a run-in for messiahship. I mean, they, they, there was a group of people who believed that he was the messiah. And it appears that he's actually a, Can- a Canaanite god who was, a, was the god of a tribe. This is what happened. Gods of tribes were turned into patriarchs, and then a higher god or a higher patriarch was put above them. 
until we get to the ultimate God. And then in the Christian tradition, you have God and the angels and the archangels and this whole world going on beyond our our five senses. So uh, the, the same kind of thing that had been done in the Old Testament with taking the older gods, Moses, Shumash, Mashu, the sun god, Shamash, uh, in the um, Semitic areas of uh, you know like Babylonian, uh, Canaanite, Akkadian, so forth. That these are all god figures already. Abraham, Abraham and Sarah appear to be Brahma and Sarasvati from India, god mm. and goddess. And it appears that the Abramite migration was in the name of Brahma from India. Uh, it is possible that this group oh, of people boy. who are Ayudians, there's Ayuds all over India, Ayudias, towns or, or regions called Ayudia, that, uh, that they spoke Chaldean, which would be Proto-Hebrew. It was kind of a, 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 a um, denigrated uh, it, version of Chaldea. Chaldea had really raised itself to a high level, and it was considered a sacred language. It became not a, pl a language of a place, but a language of a priesthood that traveled around. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. Net. It's all out of this world. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You need to get in touch with us, and we welcome your comments. You can write news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Check out our website, thepowercast.com, for our discussion boards and to download past episodes of the show. Also, you can download episodes from iTunes and other podcast aggregators. We're talking to Acharya S., and she is author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And now we get to a lot of very interesting implications here. Now, obviously, organized religion today is going to look at what you say and say, this is nonsense that Christ is going to strike you down if you continue with this blasphemy. So what do you have to say to them? <laughs> well... If you're an anthropologist and you're looking at the world's religions as all being equal or the same or um, I don't not necessarily equal in some aspects that I'm highly critical of, but detached. Let's say you're looking at them detached. Okay, now this group is is over here saying they have the uh, the, the truth, the truth, the one and only truth. It's above all others. Everybody else has uh, got got a bunch of malarkey. And then this group is saying the same thing. And this group is saying the same thing. I'm standing back and I'm looking at them all. This one's going to turn to me and say, well, you better believe what I'm saying because otherwise I'm going to threaten you with all sorts of nasty punishments. I'm sorry, but I don't buy things if I'm being threatened by the salesperson. <laughs> 
You know, I mean, I'll walk out of the store before I'll start. Oh, okay, please, here, take my money and I'll buy this, whatever you're selling me. If they're going to, yeah, buy this or I'll hit you over the head. You know, I mean, it's a competition. It's a marketplace. I ain't buying it. You can't abuse me into buying your mark, your goods and shoddy goods at that, as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> it doesn't work. I can't look at any more than, than you know, the, the Buddhists would turn around and say that I wasn't going to have good karma. I, it's just not going to work, any of them. So I'm saying that if, uh, if I told you that Hercules was the son of God and the savior of mankind, and those were epithets that were attached to him prior to the Christian era, if I told you that, and there was a priesthood very vehement in protecting Hercules, in fact, it was blasphemy to say that Hercules didn't exist. Sound familiar? Mm. So if I told you, okay, if you don't believe in Hercules as your your good buddies advocating between heaven and earth for you, then uh, Zeus is going to throw a lightning bolt at you and smite you. Are you just going to yeah. turn around and drop to your knees and start worshiping Hercules? Well, no, you have to buy into the whole myth to be intimidated by it, obviously. Right. So, to me, Jesus Christ is as mythical as Hercules, and it has the same effect on me. <laughs> as that would have on you. <laughs> well, okay, this is obviously going to cause a lot of the people who listen to the show who are definitely members of organized religion. What do you say to these people? Because they're going to be very upset. They don't want to be told that the person they're worshiping as a god or the son of God didn't exist as a real person or a spiritual person. So what message do you give to these people? Oh, the same thing I just said. Uh, the people who followed Hercules felt the same way. And when the mm. Christians came along and told them Hercules was not only did not exist as a real person on earth, they may have even believed that at the time still. Because what they did was they demonized him. He was a demon. If he existed, he was a demon. If he didn't exist, he's a demon outside of the body. He's still a demon. They're all demons. So basically, you'll go for our religion. If you don't accept our religion, you believe in demons. It doesn't matter who they are. It's not right. ours. But of course, a lot of the problems we have in the world today are due to religious conflicts of one sort or another. Certainly, well, well, we have radical it, Muslims, for example. We're talking about polarization, taking sure. extreme views. I mean, basically, everybody, everybody claims to have the answer, but meanwhile, nobody has a holistic answer, one that encompasses mm -hmm. sort of... And I think that's what Acharya is trying to get at, the sort of the meta level of understanding. Right. You look at all of these things, these religions being expressions of control of humans and human fear, and perhaps these things have nothing to do with the actual history of humanity. Yeah, so, it, it becomes, to me, much more holistic when you look at the underpinnings that you have to go back into human history. And it, there's a con continuity there, and it's totally ignored by this, uh, the, oh, there was a divine revelation 2,000 years ago. There was a divine revelation uh, 1,500 before that with Moses. There was a divine re revelation uh, with Zoroaster, the Zoroastrians believe. The Krishna people are quite sure that Krishna was a real person, that he was a divine revelation, that he brought with him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the whole shebang, what is going on in the cosmos, behind the scenes and the third dimension. People who follow Krishna are absolutely certain that he is the one the savior and so uh what if you're not following that it becomes ridiculous really because anybody with a uh with a, 
who was conditioned to be afraid of, of God's punishing them would have to join all religions. <laughs> what if they left one out? You know, I mean, you, you, you'd be running around terrified. Elvis might be a god now. If you're not worshiping him, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, there are and probably they, people listening to this that would, that would agree with that statement. But this, of course, brings up this, this question that I've always had about why is it that humans seem to want to have some parental figure to reference and to sort of offload things to, is it that human beings can't take responsibility for their own reality? Well, a lot of it comes to fear, and uh, if you go back again, project yourself back in more primitive times, uh, you can see how you'd be pretty on edge in this world because you have wild animals all over the place, uh, and the elements are rough. You have great calamities like volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, horrible storms, freezing cold temperatures. And so you have a healthy respect for nature, for sure. And then, of course, there's this impression of just looking up at the stars and then uh, the sun is enormous. The whole cosmic reckoning would make you feel quite alone and yet and, and afraid. So uh, you're afraid that everything around you is going to get you. Um, and there's a lot of propitiation to gods that comes out of that. <laughs> That's why they try to terrorize you into believing in there still to this day. <laughs> Believe in mine or go to hell for all eternity. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's also an aspect of it where you're just in awe of creation. And that leads to a sense of divinity all around. Then we get into the father-mother figures that have their basis again in nature, mother nature, father-son. Uh, and I think it's more a sensation at that at, at a certain point. It's more going to be a more sensation of just uh, welcoming and also relief from this fear. You got to think, well, there's somebody looking out for us. Isn't that great? Because there's all these things trying to get us. <laughs> so it's nice to know that we have a little bit of help. Yeah. It would be nice to think that. And then there seem to be things that happen that are very unusual and not following the laws of nature as we know them. Uh, metaphysical things. I get into trouble here with the hardcore atheists and the materialists because I, I have experienced things that are beyond the third dimension. So then you get confused about that. Is this imaginary? Did it really happen? Uh, what's the value of it? Is, does it have any value to anyone beyond well, me? Just can you be more specific? Well, people have communion with things that they can't see, feel, or touch uh, here. They might be able to hear them somewhat inside their heads. They might be able to well, see them somewhat inside their heads. Well, I was wondering if you're implying that you've had these kinds of experiences. Well, I have had unusual things happen. And so unusual things like... Um, books falling off the shelf at me that just, they just jump out that have exactly what I was looking for that I mean just things you tune into hmm. people calling because you're thinking about them animals doing interesting things like anticipating people who are miles down the road but they go and they sit by the door sensations of someone around you when there is no one physically there communing with nature thinking that you're really talking to those animals and even the trees I've spent a lot of time in nature, and, and, and I know that people who have lived in nature a long time will tell you that they can commune with nature very readily, all aspects of it. Uh, all of this stuff comes into play in how I perceive the world, and these people have these kinds of events, visions of, of a god or another. I've seen them. I've been on mountains. I've seen Buddhas in the sky. 
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. That's okay. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. What we can do here is tell you that if you want to contact us, send your message to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. And check out our message boards at thepowercast.com. We download past episodes of the show. We're talking to Acharya S., the author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And now we're talking about things metaphysical. So I'm going to ask you a fundamental question here. Is there indeed a higher power out there that we just don't understand that maybe we should try to understand a little bit better? I think we can understand that there is something called infinity. And within the concept of infinity is, is everything. <laughs> so you can find within the concept of infinity divinity, divinity infinity. Uh, so does the concept of divinity exist in the cosmos? To me, the answer is obvious. It does. It exists. It hits our heads. If it exists in our heads, it exists somewhere else. So I don't find the, the, the concept of God per se to be ridiculous, offensive, or something that I fight against. And I think again, that clarification is important because people right. are going to listen to this and say, well, she's an atheist because she doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. End of story. So we really want to explore that. Well, that would that would put all the Buddhists in the category of being atheists. It would put all the Muslims in the category of being atheists, the Jews. Uh, so I'd be in ca- company with a lot of people. Uh, Plenty of company there, yeah. <laughs> and that's the one thing that in their conceit they constantly overlook. Okay, there's really nothing new under the sun, and most of these these concepts that are so sacredly held have been around for a long time. They do not belong to the Christian cult, as I, as I see them, or sect or religion. They do not belong to any individual group. They belong to mankind as a whole. For as long as we can trace this particular uh, species, Homo sapiens sapiens, that it, those concepts would have occurred to people who were sitting around thinking uh, and that they've been around. And I mean all the sacred concepts of uh, reincarnation, uh, which in it, the dying and rising Savior God is a sense of reincarnation because every year this God dies and rises. Um, and then in that whole solar mythology you have the sun God dying and then resurrecting again in the new sun God. 
So all of these concepts, I think, were, were very intricately involved in observations of nature going back tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, possibly. Every time Homo sapiens sapiens is pushed back. When I was a kid, it was 30,000 years ago that Homo sapiens sapiens arose. And then it's like 50, 60,000. Now it's 100,000, 200,000. And that seems to be they're pushing the, the age yeah. back constantly. So we're talking about a long time for brains like ours to be developing. There had to be something going on. They weren't just pushing two sticks around and grunting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, and that brings fact, up that whole issue of, of, of lost history. You know, uh -huh. where did a lot of these mythologies really come from? And, and something we've talked about on the show, which I'm not, I don't want to take us off topic, but this idea that perhaps there have been interventions in the development of humans from external sources that have helped, helped influence and shape these feelings of, oh, you know, there's this larger, this superior power to us that... Um, in, in a hopeful case is benevolent, but that is from outside of us, that comes down and that helps us in some way that is certainly more powerful than us. Uh, in a topic we've talked about in the show is this idea that perhaps even extraterrestrial creatures have come and influenced the history of humanity and maybe planted some of this mythology in us for some purpose. I think it's worthy of, of investigating and looking at without uh, some kind of set prejudice. Mm-hmm that uh, if you're talking about an infinite universe, you're also talking about life on other planets, because this, this would be such a small drop in the bucket of the <laughs> cosmic ocean. Oh, yeah. you know, I mean, this is a cosmic ocean. I've seen people try to map this out. <laughs> it's just incredible how big we're talking. Uh, well, we're talking infinite. Where's the beginning and the end? Otherwise, where, you know, that's the same thing with God. Where, where does God end and creation begin? Right. If God is eternal and all-encompassing, it's not easily erased. All this stuff, <laughs> and the idea that we're alone in the cosmos is, is ludicrous. Now, the, the only um, drawback to this whole theory is how do they get here? How do they get there? Well, if you're thinking in conventional terms of cruising across the galaxy in a little rowboat or the cosmos, you're, you're not going to be able to perceive how anybody could possibly find this planet. But if you're, if you're looking at a kind of um, amalgamation of, uh, of mystical concepts and a scientific thinking about the, Star Trek, Stargate, these, these <laughs> concepts are, I think they have some solid scientific foundation. It all starts to meld at that point. I can think right. of Stargate. I'll tell you, I love that concept where you have this gate that spins around and you have this watery interface and you walk into it and five seconds later you're on another planet. You don't have to put up with propulsion systems or anything. You don't mm -hmm. have to have exactly. delays. You don't have to wait for plane schedules. You want to go somewhere else, you enter the Stargate, you come out at the other end, and there you are. I can dig that. And that would be how we would say, how did they get here? Well, there's, I mean, how does a, how do the, I, I use this analogy, how do the fruit flies get to the banana peel in my garbage? Well, they're coming a huge way to get there. Are they, do they come out of the banana peel itself? What if I have screens in my house? Where did they come from? You know, and even if they did fly through the window in their space, that's a long way to go. How did they, what did they smell it? They smelt it, they felt it, they tasted it. They came, um, but the, you get, if you get into that whole aspect, you have to 
you have to look at that differently too. You can't think of uh, these guys landing in the tin space cans and and saying, "Take me to your leader," kind of stuff. If you're talking about no, 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 human development thousands and tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, I don't see much evidence. I'm not a big follower of the ancient astronaut theory that has has certain gods as like the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. as them as uh, extraterrestrial beings of that sort, that flesh and blood kind of weird, you know, just I don't see that that as being an accurate depiction because I have been able to determine that the Anunnaki are astrotheological, astrotheological bodies from this very ancient source of wisdom. To the ancients who are looking at this, the cosmos as a whole, looking up the sky, looking up the sun, the moon, the stars, a bunch of creepy aliens would really not be very impressive. So to make their gods out of them would not, in, in the face of knowing that their gods are the planet Saturn, the moon, the sun, and that all of these, that these stories are about these huge powers in front of them on the on the um, the screen of reality that to focus on these creatures these aliens it wouldn't, would, wouldn't make they, sense they, yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't turn them they'd have to have gods somewhere so where are their gods then you know what i'm saying like yeah where are if those aliens are not their gods then what are their gods well their gods have to be astrotheological just like they were in every other culture and they still are to this day you find sun worship everywhere in uh, little ways that you don't realize I'm curious when you speak with your friends who perhaps are Christians or Catholics about um, your thoughts about this topic. What's their reaction? How do they how do they deal with you? Well, I didn't have a lot of people who fell into that category where I lived for the last for many years. Uh, I lived in a big city, Los Angeles, so I knew a lot of people who were not. I didn't associate personally with people like who were involved in. In that my family, my mother did, but she was very open to it. To in fact, before she passed away a couple of years ago, she was reading the Christ Conspiracy. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, where I am now, uh, there's considerably more Christian activity going on, and I don't say anything. They don't know who I am. Uh. Don't know who I am. There's reasons for that. Anybody who knows my story knows it's some reasons. I have a very odd story myself. So I've actually been through the punishment from the cosmos. Mm. <laughs> and let me tell you, if that didn't get it, get me. <laughs> I've almost died. My mother died. Uh, horrible crimes were committed against me, and that was in the last couple of years. Oh, uh, horrible story. I, I've had, if, if there was anybody with a, a boot trying to kick me in the butt, you know, from the cosmos, then it was already done. And I didn't knuckle under to any of it. <laughs> I never fell down on my knees and said, "Oh Lord, <laughs> won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz?" My <laughs> friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. You know, you, you sound either very brave or maybe a little crazy. <laughs> I, well, I mean, you know, there's a combination there of a sweet spot. I think of both. Well, certainly in in this country today, to to, to and and I. I tend to, to be more in, in your camp, Achari, than you know the the fundamentalist who's probably thinking of some way to to bash you over the head with a salami. I mean, I I'm, I, I I look at this and I tend to think that there are too many holes in the story, and and I'm open to to discussing the the possibilities that this being existed, but there just there are too many holes in the story, and it's too convenient to presume that he did because to presume otherwise 
is to sort of fly in the face of so much convention. I just think that you're you're brave for for putting these ideas forward, and for doing so, as you just said, without any sense of uh, of regret. Well, over the years, I've had fears. People brought things up to me, like, oh, aren't you afraid they're going to get you and whatnot? But they, I think a lot of the crazier ones either don't have access to this material. <laughs> or, uh, and, and some that are less crazy, like the uh, fanatic uh, apologists, either are getting used to, they, they got to make room in the worldview for people like me to exist, because we do. And they get, they're, they're out there in greater numbers, and partly because of me pushing the issue people are actually more I, I don't find them quite as insanely uh, angry when this comes up it's like ah, blah, blah, blah. you know <laughs> it's it's almost right like on message boards the, already the da vinci code <laughs> you know that I, I mean i was talking last night to a christian person who was talking about the, the da vinci code saying that uh, made her question certain aspects of her faith and whatnot and she they actually know where i stand that i I'm sorry, I don't believe the story. Hey, we're just about out of time, and I want to thank you very okay. much. Acharya S., the author of The Christ Conspiracy, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. Where do they find out more information about your books and writings? Truthbeknown.com. Truthbeknown.com. That's my website. And I've got everything there. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us this week on the PowerCast. I appreciate it. It's been a great time. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We started our show back in February. You know, something has happened that I could never have believed in all my born days. Did you know we've been nominated for an award? You're kidding. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. Apparently, there's this uh, blogger, interesting cat who we should think about having on the show, Paul Kimball. And somehow that name rings a couple of bells in my head, but he hosts a thing called the Zorgi Awards. And, as it turns out, someone on our forums alerted us to this. It turns out that the Paracast has been nominated as uh, one of the entries for Best Paranormal Paracast. Hmm. Yeah. So, our listeners, we're hoping, will take the initiative and go over and, hey, vote for us. Because we'd like to win an award of some sort. Any they award. Have, uh, any award. Doesn't really matter. But Let me give you an example of the kind of people who are nominated. Best UFO Paranormal Publication Print, 14 Times, UFO Magazine, and Saucer Smear. <laughs> Saucer Smear's on there. That's and interesting. And Nick Redfern. So he's nominated as Best Ufologist and also Best UFO Paranormal Troublemaker. Troublemaker. Just wow. Just kind of guy, yeah. So we're up against... Um, the Jerry Pipe, the, the Jerry P, 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 wasn't that the name of a failed Apple device? <laughs> <laughs> and this other show, which I have to tell you, I've never heard of, Binall of America? What the hell is that? What? <laughs>
Who is that? I don't no know who clue. they are. No clue. We're, we're clearly the best of the shows that's been nominated for Best UFO Podcast. So to our listeners, please, if you enjoy our show, please go over to redstarfilms.blogspot.com, redstarfilms.blogspot.com, and vote for your favorite podcast, The Paracast. We'd appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.